Welcome to Safety Net, a patient safety podcast with news, trends, and ideas from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claims. COVID-19 has had a profound impact on the legal system since the pandemic interrupted normal operations in spring of 2020. In Massachusetts, trials were suspended and all non-emergency court business stopped. Early in 2021, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court reopened shuttered courthouses and restarted trials with significant limitations. As criminal cases were given priority, medical malpractice cases, like all civil cases, had to go to the back of the line, a backlog that earlier this year reached an estimated 3,700 cases throughout the Commonwealth's trial system, profoundly affecting the casework for defendants and their accusers. As a second wave of reopening began in the summer, a new variant pushed COVID-19 hospitalizations and mortality rates back higher and adds further uncertainty to reopening plans for trials. Within two weeks in August, state and city governments instituted or reinstituted worker vaccine requirements and universal mask mandates. We caught up with Boston attorney Richard Riley of Murphy and Riley PC to better understand the lay of the land for medical malpractice litigation in the COVID era. Attorney Riley has been defending malpractice cases for more than 30 years. Richard, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Most people don't know what's been going on in courthouses during the pandemic. Uh, in terms of med mal cases, can you describe how things have been impacted? Well, the, uh, the pandemic, as most people know, pretty much uh, shut society down. And the courthouses were no exception. Uh, the emergency rules of which there were, I think, a, a total of uh, seven uh, that were issued by the Supreme Judicial Court uh, started off with basically closing the courthouses completely to all but emergency uh, hearings and emergency matters. And even those were subject to significant restrictions in terms of protecting you know, the health of the people coming in. Uh, as a result, uh, there were no trials, obviously. There were no in-person hearings. Discovery uh, uh, procedures were essentially put on hold. The video conferencing technology ended up helping. But uh, uh, in March of 2020, uh, most of us had never heard the term uh, Zoom conference. A lot of us now wish we had never heard it because we're so tired of it. But uh, uh, nonetheless, it took a while for things to ramp up so that cases could start proceeding again, even without the ability to appear in court. So the courthouses uh, being shut down uh, was a um, dramatic impact. Uh, the, med the trial of medical malpractice cases has only recently started being resurrected and uh, we're sort of on the cusp now of, of beginning a, uh, a new uh, chapter in this with the reopening of the courts. But uh, um, yeah, in terms of what was happening in the courthouses themselves, there was actually very little activity and that spilled over onto us. Uh, we had to learn how to keep cases moving as best we could without the ability to uh, appear in court for motions conferences or trials. That sounds challenging. And it also seems like it would have been difficult and has been difficult for defendants too. Uh, what's been the impact on 
your clients? Yeah, um, it's, you know, in many ways, there were practical uh, effects, but the practical effects turned into, I think, emotional uh, impacts. Uh, when we think about the, the clients that we serve, they're healthcare professionals. And the last 18 months has been an extraordinary challenge for healthcare professionals just uh, from what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and when we uh, intersect with them, it's because typically they've had a claim asserted or a lawsuit filed against them. And so that's just uh, an, an added level of pressure uh, and stress on top of what had to be a crushingly uh, stressful period for virtually every healthcare professional. There's almost no specialty I can think of uh, that wasn't affected either in terms of uh, the treatment of their patients who were afflicted with COVID or the interference with their ability to treat patients because they couldn't see them in person or the stresses of treating people in hospital when families were not permitted to visit and, and terminal patients and how stressful that is under the, uh, the best of circumstances. But when you had to tell the, the a family that they couldn't come and visit. So the, the emotional stress level of our clients started off at a significantly higher level. And then when you have a claim or a lawsuit uh, piled on top of that, uh, that had to have been uh, just extraordinarily difficult. And in terms of the COVID, what the, what the, the effect of that was that um, litigation basically shut down for a year. And so in cases that in the best possible track, a medical malpractice case is assigned to what in the Superior Court we call the average track, which is kind of a euphemism because the average track means that from the time the complaint is filed to the time the case is expected to resolve is three years. And that's in, in good times. So you add the last year on top of that and the backlog of cases that we're going to be contending with going forward, trying to get these cases tried uh, or otherwise resolved. Um, and that delay and the extension of those cases for months and months and months longer than they otherwise would have piled onto the stress that the professionals were already contending with. That's what I see. I see the uh, impact being um, a stress impact and not one that any of them actually needed for sure. What's happening now with uh, the system and cases? So now the, uh, the courthouses, uh, as of uh, right now, August of 2021, um, are on the threshold, in most cases, of reopening completely. The Supreme Judicial Court issued its most recent order uh, at the beginning of July, and it was effective on July 12th. Uh, essentially reopening the courthouses without any limitations on capacity uh, or uh, spacing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, the only requirement is that everyone going into a courthouse, regardless of vaccination status, is required to wear a mask. Uh, but you know, court sessions are all reopening, trial dates are being assigned and they're lining cases up for trial. So we're, we're encouraged that uh, cases are going to start getting tried again. And that's our goal. If the determination has been made that this is a case to try, uh, and, and CRICO is, is very firm and, and, and um, defensive of its 
uh, providers in terms of not settling a case out of convenience. If a case is defensible, they will try the case. Um, the courts know that. And as a result, medical malpractice cases actually um, get um, a level of uh, priority of uh, cases that are coming up for trial because the courts know that if we schedule this malpractice case for the day after Labor Day, it's going to go because we know the lawyers are by actual trial lawyers who try cases. They're not likely to collapse the Friday before and, and either settle out or dismiss the case, although that does happen sometimes. Um, and that they've already made the arrangements to have their clients take uh, a week or two weeks away from their practice so they can attend the trial. Experts are perhaps flying in from other parts of the country and uh, uh, you know those sorts of arrangements have been made. That having been said, again, it's August, and I heard on the radio on the way in that the uh, uh, city of Salem has just uh, instituted a citywide mask mandate again, and school systems are instituting mask mandates. And we're seeing an uptick. I don't want to call it an upsurge, but an uptick uh, in the uh, uh, COVID cases being reported. Uh, such that, um, you know, it's uh, many unvaccinated people, but there's, there are the breakthrough cases that we're hearing about. Um, so me- from a medical uh, public health standpoint, it's unclear how things are going to unfold over the next, you know, two to three to, to six months. And considering that trials got essentially put on hold for a year or, or more, uh, how do we expect this backlog of cases to affect um, scheduling and and the rest. Yeah, that's probably one of our greatest concerns is the backlog. The the last statistic I saw on that was that as of, I think it was March or April of this year, uh, there was a backlog of 3,700 cases. Throw out the trial court system, and that's the superior court, district court, all the other trial courts, the uh, you know, probate and family court, but still 3,700 cases that are waiting to be tried. And of those, the criminal cases are going to get uh, priority. They have to get priority, especially the ones where the SJC has said that uh, uh, priority shall be given to criminal cases, especially where the defendant is in custody. So in, in some cases, because of dangerousness or because of prior, you know, the risk of flight, whatever it might be, uh, people are actually in prison awaiting trial and have been sometimes for many, many, many months. These are not all guilty people. And so you can understand the, the, the uh, compulsion that is felt to get those criminal cases to trial, not to mention that there's a constitutional right uh, that criminal defendants have to a, a quote unquote speedy trial. So we're gonna, we're gonna be facing competition uh, from the criminal side uh, for jurors uh, and for trial dates. So uh, it's, we're all waiting and watching and we on behalf of our clients will be arguing as strenuously as we can to get those cases scheduled for trial Um, but we are going to have these um, obstacles along the way. And we're, uh, you know, six months from now, we'll have a much better sense of how it has all panned out. Right now, we just have our fingers crossed. In Massachusetts last year, the governor signed a law 
providing limited immunity for outcomes related to the pandemic. Have we seen that used as a defense or how do you expect it to be used? Yeah, um, it's a very interesting question uh, because uh, it's been used in the sense that we have asserted it. Um, I have asserted it as on multiple occasions uh, in response to a chapter 23160L claim letter um, and as an affirmative defense uh, in an answer to a complaint. But because it is such a, a, a new law and a new phenomenon, and it only applies to uh, cases that involve treatment that occurred during the state of emergency, during the governor's state of emergency, which was from March 10th of last year until June 15th of this year. So while we have asserted it, to my knowledge, it has not been tested in court in terms of either a summary judgment motion or uh, if, if there is a fact uh, issue uh, uh, asserted at trial, um, but because it is so new. So we're waiting to see how that is going to pan out. We, we have our antennas up for that issue. It hasn't been tested yet, but it is a rather broad uh, immunity. It's an immunity from civil liability entirely. Uh, under the statute, as long as the, the person was acting uh, in accordance with the applicable COVID regulations and acting in good faith. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, th th there being a case where there was where we don't meet the good faith standard. So then the only question is going to be, was the treatment or care impacted by COVID limitations? And uh, um, so we'll We'll be waiting uh, to see about that, but I think it's important for both the, the, the legal team and the defense team and the, uh, the providers to have this in their minds if a claim comes in to be alert for that uh, potentially applying. Um, what other concerns do you have uh, as we reopen the courts and as these cases move forward now? Uh, my two, I think I have two main concerns. One is the delay. Um, the, the population generally and healthcare professionals are sometimes astounded at how long it takes a malpractice case to work its way through the system. Uh, and my concern is that with the delays and the, the competition for jurors and the, the threat of uh, you know, restrictions being reimposed because of the uptick in cases that we've seen, uh, that it's going to take even longer to work the cases through the system. And, you know, that we only have, we as the attorneys have only a limited amount of control over that. Um, but that is one of my concerns. Um, I also have a concern about the uh, actual practicality of trying cases. The most significant lingering restriction uh, the courts are requiring, or they have to require, according to the most recent SJC order, uh, require masks of everyone who goes into the courthouse. Uh, and the only thing I have heard that has, you know, removed that limitation uh, partially is that a witness who is actually testifying and the lawyer who is actually asking the questions, they may, if they choose, remove their mask. That tells me that if a witness does not choose to remove their mask, and, and they very well may not, they may have health concerns uh, being in a room full of people, um, is uh, that uh, from the legal perspective, um, 
credibility is such an, an extraordinarily important part of trying any case. And the ability to see a person's face when they're speaking to you uh, is a huge part of assessing a person's credibility. You see gestures and, you know, if I, I won't, I won't try and, and uh, uh, imitate them, but you can imagine a smirk or a frown or a, uh, some sort of uh, facial uh, uh, gesture that you're not seeing at all. Uh, you also are not going to see that in the jurors uh, because the jurors all are going to be required to wear masks uh, throughout. Um, so the, the, the masking of witnesses and jurors is, I think, going to be a, a hindrance. And my third concern is the fact that we seem to be uh, going in the direction of six-person juries. Uh, right now, that's all juries uh, in civil cases are six uh, six-person juries that will still seat alternates. And in the last case I heard that went to trial uh, actually sat eight jurors and all of them were allowed to deliberate. I think the research has shown that the larger your sampling group, the more reliable the outcome is. Um, the federal system has had six jurors forever. And, you know, I've tried cases in the federal court to six jurors and not really found that the outcomes were uh, unexpected or different from, uh, you know, what I thought would have occurred with a larger jury. Um, nonetheless, I, 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 I see uh, research out there that says that 12-person juries are more reliable in the outcomes that they come up with and have fewer outliers as well, fewer, you know, runaway verdicts, for instance. Uh, so I don't like the fact that we seem to be uh, going to have six-person juries for the long term. I would say those are my three biggest concerns going forward. Uh, in fact, uh, as I think about them, I don't actually think I have any control over any of them. <laughs> so like everyone else, I'm going to have to just uh, uh, do the best we can with a system that has been uh, injured by uh, this uh, whole COVID uh, nightmare. Well, thank you, uh, Richard Riley. Richard Riley is a partner in Murphy and Riley PC in Boston. I'm Tom Agello for SafetyNet. Thank you for listening to SafetyNet, a podcast of news, trends, and ideas from Crico in the Harvard Medical System. Find all of our podcasts at www.rmf.harvard.edu/podcast and subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcast, and then rate and review the show to help others find it too.